listening to the Save the Marriage podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now. Hey, this is Lee Balkum. Welcome to the Save the Marriage podcast. This is the podcast that I designed to help you save your marriage no matter where you are in the process, whether you're at the end of your rope trying to hang in there and figure out how to turn it around, or even if you're at the beginning trying to make sure you don't fall into the traps. Today's a little bit different. It's a little bit of a longer training because what I did is I pulled out one of my trainings from VIP that I felt like was so important for you to understand. VIP is a program I have for people who have my system, who already have the basic knowledge, but really want to step it up to the next level. And in that training or in that program, I provide training and I answer questions in a coaching uh, format and a lot of other tools and information to help you. So this kind of came as an interesting thing for me. I was trying to think through how this place of stuckness happens. Not your place of stuckness, but your spouse's place of stuckness. And I realized that there are these three barriers that get in the way. So I put that together in this training and it got such a response that I stepped back and said, you know what, I've got to do more with this because more people have to understand this of why they're stuck and how to get beyond the three barriers. It's not enough to know that the barriers are there, right? That's the beginning point to be able to identify the barriers. But the important thing is, How do you step beyond those three barriers? So I ended up writing a book. It's a pretty simple book, pretty straightforward book, easy to read, not real long. And I have it on Amazon. Uh, So if you listen to this training and it makes sense to you, or maybe you don't want to listen to the training, you'd rather read some. I go further in that book. You can find that by going to savethemarriage.com slash barriers. That's savethemarriage.com slash barriers. That will get you there. Now, I got to warn you, it's also not expensive, less than a dollar to get that information. So uh, check that out. Now, this is a little bit longer of a training because it's that's what I provide for uh, the members of VIP. It, it goes beyond what a podcast episode could do. So buckle in, listen in, figure out where your spouse is stuck, and let's get you and your spouse beyond these three barriers. You want to save your marriage. So why doesn't your spouse? Well, the fact is that it may not be so much about wanting to save the marriage as your spouse not seeing a way to save a marriage. Think about if you're about to step into a completely dark room You have no idea what's in that room. You're stepping in. The doorway opens up and it's pitch black in there. There's no light behind you, nothing catching. Are you going to step in? I mean, you have no idea what's in there. Are you going to step in and bang up your shin, stub your toe, fall over something, or not even know what's on the other side of it? The answer to that is no, you would not. You, though, stand at a different place. That's your spouse. You happen to know that there's a doorway through there. In fact, you might even be able to kind of dimly see in there. And somebody has said, hey, be careful. Here's where the path goes. Follow it, right? That's the difference. You may not know exactly how you're going to get there, but you've come to the point of realizing there is a way through that. Your spouse has not. 
So let me tell you what I've discovered having talked with lots of people apart from a spouse. In fact, I've done research on this fairly extensively. What I realized is, as I'm talking with a spouse who says, I do not want to stay married, I want to get a divorce, rarely do they really want that as much as they see no other way through that. It's not that they want to be divorced. It's not that they want to go through the process of it. It's not that they want to go through the pain of it, the legal process, the fees, the cost, all of that stuff. They don't see another way forward. The fact is that we always choose the path that pulls us away from pain. There are really only two things that ever motivate us in life, whether we move towards something that will get us away from pain or we move towards something that's more valuable from where we've been. That's the two things that ever motivate us in life. And if you can't see a way to get through the pain in a way that preserves something, you get away from it. So, What I've done over and over is talk to people and ask them, scale of one, zero to a hundred, right? At a hundred, you're a hundred percent out. Zero, you absolutely do not want the marriage or you can reverse it depending on who I've talked to. And usually they're a hundred percent out is more like 80% or 70% out. There's a part of them that really would like to have this relationship work, would really like to have the love back, but they don't see a how. They don't see a way to do that. And they have this pain within them that they want to get away from. So in that research, what I realized is that there are three central blocks to a spouse moving forward. And this is very important for you to understand these three blocks because something happens to us whenever we see a way forward, we lose track of why others can't see that same way forward. It's just human nature that if you can, you know, I've I've watched it in in, uh, different experiments where people are, you know, they know a way to solve a puzzle and the other person doesn't and how frustrated they get that the other person's like, I I can't, there's no way this can be solved. And you're looking at it going, it's right here, right? Just this past Thanksgiving, uh, my family was working on a puzzle and one of the family members came over, looked at it and said, you can't get that together. The rest of us were slowly putting it together a piece at a time. The difference was we saw a way forward. The other person didn't. They walked away. Does that mean they don't ever want to do a puzzle? No, they just couldn't see it. But I was sitting there going, what are you talking about that you can't do this? Of course you can, right? And it's the same place that often comes to a person who wants to save their marriage and their spouse is going, they can't be saved. I don't want to save it. I don't want to work on this. In reality, there are some things that are blocking them from being able to see that. Remember this. Divorce is tough, and everybody knows that. So they're choosing to go through a tough process because it seems more viable than the alternative of not knowing how to move forward. I want to get out of pain, so I'll choose that. Not, I just want to be divorced. I have yet to meet somebody who said, you know, I intended on this the whole time. When we got married, I figured we've got a good five or ten years in us, and then we're just going to call it quits. That's not how people line this up. Nobody's kind of going, okay, well, you know, had a good run. That was what we were counting on. Ten years, we got that. Everybody goes promise for life, right? 
there was a period of time not many years ago when I would read some people who were making their vows and they would vow that they would stay married as long as they were in love. And I'm like, well, that's an easy one, right? I'll stay friends with you as long as we're friends, right? That's not what marriage has ever been about. Marriage is saying we're bonded together, right? We're in this for good because that's the only way the, the flip happens. The switch comes on to do what has to happen to make a successful marriage. What makes a successful marriage? Being a we, being a team. When you're a we, it's not, okay, well, we'll do you and me for a few years, and then I guess we'll call it quits, right? To become a we, there has to be in your mind the assurance that this is ongoing. Years ago, my kids were at a a school uh, where uh, the idea was that the kid wasn't the problem, If a child was having difficulties, the teacher had to figure out what was going on within them and in their relating and in their teaching style for that child to be having problems. What the school had said is, we're committed to the kids who are here. They're going to be here, right? So now we've got to figure out how to work with them. If there's a failure, it's on our part. That same commitment you know, it happens in relationships too. At one point when my wife and I were having an argument, she looked at me, she said, whatever you're about to say, is it going to be useful given the fact that we're going to be together forever for the rest of our lives, right? Is it going to be useful? And suddenly it becomes a different calculation. Everything is a different calculation when you really get it in there that this is for good. So when things are going bad, the pain ratchets up to the point where a spouse goes, I can't do forever in the pain I'm in. That's how we get to this divorce thing. And so you're going, oh, I, I don't want that, right? You, you want to go to a different place. But there's another piece that has had to have happened. There's a part of you at some point that went, there's got to be a way to make this work. I'm going to go find it. Now, honestly, when people uh, kind of jump into my program, they're usually standing at the door going, it's dark, but I know there's a way through, and I can see a little bit of that. Being in a more intense program, you can begin to go, okay, now I've got a torch. Now I've got a flashlight. Now I can kind of see my way through. But your spouse doesn't have that torch, that flashlight. Your spouse still can't see through the room. So you're trying to, it's kind of like, you know, you've got the flashlight. They've got on um, a mask that they can't see out of. You know, you've covered their eye or they've covered their eyes and they can't see through. And you're trying to pull them into the dark room and they're going, no, no, I can't see anything. And you're going, I can see the way. And they're going, but I can't, right? And so they're pulling against you. Because here is a key feature for most marriage crises, It is rarely true that one person's unhappy and the other is happy. It's almost universally true that both people are in some level of pain. It's possible that you're going, yeah, yeah, I didn't know it was as bad as this until my spouse said, I'm done. So, but no, I wasn't happy. I mean, I've heard that. Or yes, I still love my spouse, but yeah, it hadn't been good for a while. I mean, I hear lots of ways of people basically saying, we both are on the same page that something is wrong here. It's just that I want to find a way forward and my spouse doesn't. So part of what we're trying to do is figure out what is the block for a spouse seeing another way forward. Those are these three barriers. 
remember we're starting with the, the place where you both may be unhappy, but you want to find a way forward and your spouse doesn't see how that's possible. Let's use that as a foundation as we understand these three barriers that are keeping them stuck. Because by the way, some remnants of those barriers are probably within you too. Okay, so let's jump in and just look at each of those three barriers. To let you know where we're headed, barrier one, hurting. Barrier two, hopeless. And barrier three, helpless. Okay, so let's jump in on barrier one, hurting. So I use that as a catch-all. You may say, my spouse doesn't look like they're in much pain, but man, they're angry. Boy, they've got resentment. So I need to let you know and remind you if, you if you know it and have forgotten it or never knew it in the first place, that anger and resentment are the external, secondary emotions to hurt, to fear, to threat. If I'm walking down the street and someone jumps out and threatens me, my response is likely to be anger back at them. It's a repelling emotion. That's, that's how it's designed within us. If I feel threatened and I can repel the enemy, I stay safe. So anger is a repelling emotion. But understand that behind that is my fear, my threat. The same thing happens when, when somebody hurts us, whether it's physically hurt or emotionally hurt. And you know, more often than not, it's just emotional hurt. And sometimes it's unintentional hurt. In fact, most of the time it's unintentional hurt, and yet it still hurts. And so when we feel hurt, we also show anger. And if the anger is not addressed, it becomes systemic and becomes resentment. Now it's ground in there, right? It's not just I'm angry with you like the hot of it, but it's a smoldering flame that engulfs the whole system. Not just the one area where you're angry, but the whole system. So behind that, and that's where we want to focus, is the hurting. The hurting can be a psychic hurt, but the brain experiences that as physical pain. If you've ever watched somebody who has been, and maybe even felt it yourself, you've been rejected and, and you, your heat feelings are hurt, you, you notice people are holding their stomach or their head or their neck or their back or they're pacing around. It's like they're trying to get out of something that's got hold of them, right? Sometimes we want to physically get away from somebody that has hurt us, and that's because our brain is registering that as physical pain, physical discomfort, The same place in your brain that registers when somebody punches your arm is the same thing when somebody punches your ego, right? It it feels the same or punches, uh, you you know, your your, uh, emotional life. Your physical life and your emotional life, whenever there is hurt there, it registers as physical pain. What do we do when we're in physical pain? We try to get away from the pain. It's interesting to me how our body, I mean, it makes sense, right? If, if something is, is pushing on my hand, I need to get, a, get my hand away from what's pushing on it. The problem is, like, if you've ever had a headache and you've tried to get away from the headache or a backache and you're, you know, you're trying to find some way of getting comfortable and getting away from it, you know that the pain doesn't just go away because there's nothing just impinging on it. And the same is true with our psychic pain. As far as we, we keep trying, we keep, you know, I need some space. We try to move away and the space doesn't work. And the more we do that, the more we're trying to go, how can I finally get away from this hurt? 
What if I got rid of what's causing the pain? That's where divorce begins to be a piece. So what causes this hurting? I think there are three core pieces that really stir this pain in ways that allow people or cause people to go, the solution is divorce. And that is disconnection, disregard, and disrespect. Disconnection is the primary piece. It's kind of like you know the pause button. You didn't know you were hitting the pause, but pausing is disconnecting, even if you didn't know it. So the pause button marriage is when you get to this place, you get married, and you're like, oh, got to deal with the kids. Pause. Oh, got to deal with the career. Pause. Oh, got to deal with my hobbies. Pause. I'll get back to the relationship down the road when the kids are old enough, when you know I've got the promotions, I've got the money in the bank, uh, I've finished out my young hobbies or whatever, you know, tired of being with my friends, whatever, something that you're going to go, I'll unpause. And then you come back, you hit unpause, and by golly, the relationship is disconnected. Your spouse is in pain. You're in pain too. You just didn't know it would be there. And when you came back and you went, wait, what happened? I thought we'd get back to us. It's likely that both people did that. I'm not saying that you caused that. I'm saying that relationships do that. People in relationships do that. You hit pause and that causes the disconnection. So the disregard is the sensation or the sense that somebody is not putting your needs or our needs ahead of someone, something else is including their own. If I'm disregarding my wife, I'm making decisions based on what I want, not what's good for us, or even including her in the process. If I disregard her emotions, let's say she comes in, she's had a hard day, and I'm like, yeah, well, whatever, you know, get over it, move on. I'm disregarding her emotional state. What's leading that? Mostly disconnection. That's why I put that first. When I feel disconnected from somebody, I'm more likely to disregard them. We do that all over life, right? If, if there's somebody that I don't know and they're, they're suffering and they're in pain, it's easier for me to disregard them than if I know them, if they're a friend or, or have some connection with them. So that infects our relationship. If I'm hurt from the disconnection that's between us, whether it's my fault, your fault, our fault, whatever, I start disregarding. I start making decisions on my own. I start acting on my own, in my own self-interest. And the other person goes, wow, I feel completely disregarded. Now, the irony is, rarely do we go, ooh, I think I might have been disregarding my spouse. Instead, we go, wow, my spouse is disregarding me. And yet we do it to each other, right? And then disrespect. At some point, you start going, wait, they're acting on their own. I don't respect your decision-making anymore. I don't respect you as a person anymore because you're making these decisions. Many times I talk with people and they're like, you know, my spouse needs to earn my respect. To which I often reply, do you have to earn your spouse's love? I mean, that because they, I put those as two big pieces. That's from some training I've done on love and respect. Um, uh, Emerson Egerich has wrote a book, Love and Respect, where he talks about the fact that that's two things that people need, but men need respect more than love and women need love more than respect. I mean, that's a very generalized statement, but we start disrespecting each other. The disconnection can feel like not loving. Usually, though, there's a fundamental love that's still there. I hear many people say, you know, I, I still love you. I'm not in love with you. And what they're missing is that that's about the disconnection. And that's hardened up by the feeling of being disregarded and finally the disrespected. 
So those experiences are what lead to our feeling the hurt. So barrier one that your spouse has is feeling hurt. Might that be yours too? Yes. But you're not the one who's here, so we're going to talk about how you move beyond that in just a minute. So the hurting piece is a big barrier. Second barrier is hopeless. Hopeless. We as humans need to be able to have hope. That's what propels us forward. I was having a conversation some years ago in another country. Um, it was in the Dominican Republic. And the Dominican Republic was having a conversation, uh, not just conversation, but legal actions against Haiti. Because Haiti kept having people coming into the Dominican Republic. Now, it's a barrier issue, right? It's, it's a boundary or a border issue, which we're also experiencing in the U.S., And so I was talking with a minister and and I was asking about how they were dealing with the Haitian crisis. And and he said, I just don't understand why they're coming here. I hear the same conversations in the U.S. too. I don't understand why they're coming here. And I said to him, people always move towards hope. People always move towards hope. Now, we see that all the time. I mean, people make decisions based on hope. I hope that this relationship will make me happy, right? They move towards hope. I hope this job will turn into something. I hope. And so every year we watch as kids, and, and you might be at the same age. I, my kids are now out of college and, and have moved on. But I remember that point. You know, what, why are they going to college? Not to waste four years partying, but because they had hope that that would move them to something better. We always move towards hope. And if we lose hope, we fall into despair. And when we fall into despair, we start lashing out against what we think is keeping us from being hopeful. So in relationships, when we lose hope, it's because we can't see a way forward. You open the dark room. You have no idea what's in there. You don't even know there's a door on the other side. Are you going to step in? No. If all that happens is somebody holds a flashlight, shines it straight across the room and says, look, you can walk straight across and open that door and it's bright, sunny outside, you suddenly go, okay, I've got hope. I'm going. Just hold that flashlight for me or I got it. I'm going, right? All I need to see is there is a way forward. But if you see no way forward, you fall into hopelessness. That's a bad place to be for any of us. We all need that. There is power in hope. When I was a chaplain, uh, I came in as a chaplain at a time when anytime anybody was hopeful, they said they are in denial and they would have to crush people's denial. And I was sitting there going, what sense does this make? People need some sense of hope to continue moving forward. And what we finally realized is that people had better outcomes given the same factors if they were hopeful about the process. When they lost hope, they gave up and their health fell apart. Viktor Frankl is one of my favorite authors. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning, and he talked about the importance of having hope. We need hope to keep moving forward when things are tough. You know, if somebody said, you're going to be miserable, but you're going to get through this. We can go through the misery. 
when I got sick, the doctors were telling me that I was going to be disabled. The research was showing me that I was going to die from this illness. And I, I had no choice in those days to keep plodding forward and keep going to work and keep trying to earn for my family. I had no choice about that. But it was devastating to me. And then I had a doctor who said, hey, you know what? I think you have a variant of this illness and you're going to get better, but you are going to be absolutely miserable for a while. My response to that, okay, I can be miserable for a while if I know I'm going to be okay. I can go through hell if I know that there's a way out on the other side. If you want to know to me what the definition of hell is, is being in the midst of suffering with no hope of moving through it. A marriage crisis often can feel like hell to someone who doesn't see any way through. So we have to have hope, but there is a danger of hope. And this is a danger you need to be aware of. Because we begin to place our hope into a single nodal event. This is called the Stockdale Paradox. Stockdale said that during the war, you know, he, he realized that watching that he was a, a prisoner of war. And during the war, he realized that the people who had no hope ended up just dying. And people needed hope. And the person was asking about, you know, what's the, the, the other danger? And he said, oh, hope, right? If you put all of your hope in a specific thing. So he said that the prisoners who had problems were the ones who either gave up all hope or placed all of their hope in X. We'll be out of here by Christmas. Then what happens when December 26th came along? We'll be out by Easter. Then what happened when summer came along? We'll be out by fall. Then what happened when winter came along? Because they had said, it's got to be this, this is what I'm hoping for. When that came and passed, they were lost. They didn't know how to respond. And then they would give up. Rather than going, my hope is going to be how I move forward. This, So I'm going to talk about how we regain that hope in just a minute. But just to understand that there is power in having hope and there's a danger in having the wrong kind of hope. So a spouse who says, okay, fine, we'll go on this nice romantic cruise and we'll rebuild our relationship and they get back and you're back to fighting in regular life because no changes have actually happened in a relationship. You just had a lot of good sex while you're away, right? Or um, you, if I give them this one gift, right? The same thing happens, ironically enough, in my program when people go, okay, I'll give this apology letter and, and I've got it. And what they don't recognize is the apology letter is simply a step in the process. It is not the process. It's not a magic formula. It's powerful for what it needs to do. But for some reason, it's gained a mythology for some people that this is it. I write my letter, got it done. But they forget that you can write an apology letter and make no changes. Nothing has changed in how you're relating to each other, and you fall right back into the old patterns. It's just a matter of time. So we have to have hope. But there has to be a way we understand that hope, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay, the third barrier is being helpless. Very few people want to be helpless. 
The ones who do are the ones who somehow get something out of being the victim. And guess what? They're not really helpless. They're just playing on other people. But most of us don't want to feel that way. So what happens, right? People feel helpless when they go, man, there's just no attraction here, right? We don't have any connection. There's just nothing here. I don't know what to do about that. Nobody teaches us what to do. (laughs) Let me just step back and say, nobody teaches us what to do to be married in the first place, much less what to do in the midst of a crisis. And so most people are ill-equipped to deal with marriage, much less a marriage crisis. So what I hear often from people who are experiencing the helplessness is, I've tried. Ironically enough, many times it is exactly that. I've tried. I tried to do something. It didn't work, so I give up. Not, we tried. Many times, there's n- they've never even talked about their marriage problem. Never you know, tried therapy or a boot camp or a seminar or my program or coaching or anything else. They're just like, I tried on my own. Usually, the spouse didn't even know they were trying. But because they tried, they go, as nothing that can be done. There's no alternative. Or they use another rationale like, you know, if this was meant to be, it should be easier. Since it's not easy, it must be wrong, so we just need to get out. That's a level of helplessness. Instead of seeing that anything important is going to take some some work. I could just as easily say, you know, if I was meant to have muscles, I wouldn't have to exercise. If I have to exercise, there must be something wrong. If I'm meant to be healthy, then it would just happen. I wouldn't have to eat well. I wouldn't have to take my vitamins. You know, I wouldn't have to take care of my body. It would just be there. We don't do that anywhere else, and yet we do it around relationships. Relationships take effort, but it's worth the effort because they're important to us. We value them. And that the actuality is at a point when we no longer want to put value on it, we say, well, you know, it should be easier. If it's not easier, there's something wrong here. It's just a cop-out. But many people use that as a way of expressing their helplessness. Now, the other thing I often hear is, well, we do, did try some things, and we always end up right back at the same place. Let me tell you why that happens. There was no fundamental shift in how people were relating. So they just went back to the old habits. Change their habits short-term. But it's not a long-term. And because it's not a long-term shift, nothing truly changes. And since nothing truly changes, you get back to the same painful place you were in, and you go, "Ah, here we are, once again, I told you. We're just going to be right back to the same place. It always gets to the same place. Unless there is a fundamental true shift, unless there is a new way of understanding things, Unless you're working on things from a different angle, nothing changes. In psychology, we talk about first order and second order changes. First order changes is is more cosmetic. I act differently. So a spouse says, you know, I feel very disrespected. So you put on your happy face and you try to act like you're respecting them. But nothing has changed internally because nothing has changed about your understanding of respect. So... If you really get to the place where you realize that respect is a fundamental way of interacting with people, that's a second order change. It's a true change. If you understand, if you get just like, oh, we're not in love, 
I'm going to act like I'm loving my spouse. I'm going to act like I'm interested, but there's no actual change. That's a first order change. But if you figure out how to truly change and connect on a physical, emotional, and spiritual basis, as I talk about, that's a second order change. So let me say very clearly that my program is based on making second order changes, not pretending, which is why things can get to a different place if you go through that. Your spouse is going, why even try? Every time we try, it just gets back to the exact same place we've been. What's it matter? Because there hasn't been any real change. But what if there's a way to make real change? I hear very often from people, a leopard never changes its spots. True. But that's a cosmetic factor. That's a look factor. Has nothing to do with what can happen on the inside. When we, I'm, I'm never going to be not 6'4", right? I'm just not. I, I, I might shrink a little bit in old age, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to be a short person, Right? How, whoever you are cosmetically is true, but who I am on the inside, who my, where my character is, how I choose to respond, how I choose to live my life, what habits I choose to have, absolutely under my control. Those aren't spots. That's who we are. So here are your tasks in order to deal with those barriers. There are three. Healing, hoping, and heading. Don't you like the little alliteration? So there's our hurting, hopeless, and helpless. That's what's holding them back. Your way forward is healing, hoping, and heading. Healing. This is where the apology comes in. But I think there are several things that have to happen. Apology, showing up, and forgiving. All three have to happen in order to get to a new place of healing. So one of the things that often happens for people in the midst of a marriage crisis is they stop showing up. They just distance themselves, and when their spouse is around, you know, they don't, they don't look at them. They don't bring any energy into it. They don't, they're just hollow. They are, as I've talked about on my Thrivology podcast, zombies. They're not showing up to their own life, much less to the life of those around them. We show up when we give attention to what's important. We show up when we not allow ourselves to be distracted. We show up when we don't lead with our anger and resentment. So how do we get to that place? We forgive. That's why the training on forgiveness is so important. One of the reasons that people don't show up is because they feel the hurt and they don't want to deal with it. So what if you can forgive the hurt And you don't have to deal with it because you've moved beyond it. Wouldn't that be a better place to be? Many times, people who can best show up in life are the ones who have created the skills where they can let go, forgive, release. Not release the person, but release the hurt. So that's the importance of showing up. That's the importance of forgiving. And then that's also how you apologize My apology formula, my apology letter formula, is a place to go, here's where I need to accept responsibility and where I need to pivot. Both those at the same time. 
Remember, if you apologize for having done something wrong and you make no changes so that that never happens again, you didn't really apologize. I see it many times where people are making apologies because they want to get away from the hurt, not because they are actually going to make a change in their life. That doesn't work. We have to truly make changes in order for an apology to be true. So part of the task for all of us is to go, okay, how can I show up to life, change the patterns where I've caused hurt, let go of the pain in my own life and apologize and be responsible for what I've done? That's the whole healing piece there. Think about the power of that, of bringing healing into the hurt. You're addressing the hurt directly and addressing your own hurt directly and saying, I'm not going to be held captive by that, nor do I want you to be. So I'm showing up and I'm taking responsibility. Now, there is another piece and you don't have to say it, but a spouse has to decide what they're going to do with your apology. They may say, I'm not letting go, which is when they're not showing up. But that's not your responsibility. Your healing part is to create a place where that can happen. Which leads us to the hoping part. Charles Snyder did a lot of research on what hope actually is. It's kind of a broad concept for us. You know, we kind of know if we, uh, I'm hopeful that they're going to win the game, right? That you can say that that's a hope, but that's not really hope. That's just, you know, it's kind of a wishful thinking. And, And so here is his definition of hope. Hope includes having a focused direction, meaning you know where you want to go. And plus, you have the capacity to get there, meaning you know what it takes to get there. Plus, you have the actual motivation to get there. So hope equals focus direction plus capacity to get there plus the motivation. If any of those are missing, it ain't hope. Let's say you have no goal. It doesn't matter what skills you have or whatever motivation might be in you. If you don't know where you want to get to, Nothing's happening. There's no direction. There's nothing that you're moving towards. And remember, we move towards hope. We move towards something that's better than where we are. We have goals. It's very important for you to be clear about what your goal is. And one way I talk about that is understanding your where and why. Where do you want to get to? Where do you want your relationship to be? Why do you want it to be? I ask people to write down their mission statement for their their marriage. What do you want your marriage, your, your vision statement for that to be? What is your marriage vision statement? And then I ask them to talk, think about their whys. What are the whys that power this? Why do you want to save your relationship? Not fear-based, but aspirational-based. Not I'm afraid to lose time with my kids, but because I want to honor the commitment I made to my uh, my spouse, for instance. That's just one on each side, right? Something that is pulling us to something else. That's a where we want to get to. Why do we want to get there? We have both of those. You have a focused direction. Now your goal is to restore your relationship. You can break that down further. And that begins to be your plan, which is our capacity to get there. If you say, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to travel across the country. Do you have a way of doing that? Do you have any plans on doing that? Nope, but that's what I want to do. That's wishful thinking. You've got a direction, but there's nothing you're doing to get you to that place. You're not buying a camper. You're not buying a car. You're not packing. You're not planning. You're not looking at a map. You're just like, I'm just going to, yeah, that's just what I want to do. 
We all have those in life, right? I mean, we all have some things we're like, yeah, you know, man, I'd really like that to happen. But we set no plans in motion to get there. We have no plan to get there. We have no clarity of what that would really look like. We just go, I'd like to do that. That's not about hope. That's wishful thinking. When we say, okay, what are the skills I need to get there? What are the skills I need to gain? What are the capacities I don't have right now that I need to do? That's part of what you're doing here is gaining those skills and capacity. That's part of what the program is designed for, to give you the skills and capacity. When you take those in, when you learn them, then you can move forward in more powerful ways because now you have a skill set you didn't have before. And with that skill set, you can begin to move towards that goal, that focused direction. But there's the other piece that still has to be there, and that is you have to get motivated to get there. Sometimes I spend a lot of time with people who have been working at this for a while, and they know what they want to get to. They even have a skill set to do that, but they give up on it. They lost their motivation. And there can be lots of reasons. Sometimes it's just being tired. Sometimes a spouse has cheated on you, and you, that's, your, you know, that's as far as you're willing to go. Sometimes the spouse has been irresponsible with money or done something else, and that's as far as you're willing to go. Sometimes there have been criminal action. You go, I'm, I'm not willing to do that, just not willing to continue that process. But sometimes we just lose our mojo. <laughs> we just lose our energy. We just give up. So you can have both a goal, a focused direction, and you can even have gained some capacity. But if you don't have a way of executing that, the motivation to do it, it's not going to go anywhere. So what's the motivation? That's where I talk about those four C's. How do you carry it out? Calm, constant, consistent, courageous. What you'll notice I didn't say in any of this is that you'll feel fearless, that there'll be no fear behind this. Courage is not a lack of fear. It's taking action anyway because it's important. Because you know where you want to get to and you know why it's important. That pushes you ahead. So you need to be the carrier of hope. You need to be the healing agent, but you also need to be the carrier of hope. When a spouse is hopeless, don't fall into that trap. You don't have to try to give them hope as much as to have the hope. To understand that hope and say, okay, I get it. My spouse doesn't see a way. I'm going to stay on focus. I'm going to stay focused on where I want to get to. I'm going to gain the capacity I need. I'm not going to try to get my spouse to get the capacity. You have to wait on that. They have to decide that on their own. And I'm going to stay motivated in that process. And in the process, I manage the hope. If my spouse can't be hopeful, I'll be hopeful. Not I'll make my spouse hopeful, but I'll be hopeful. And the last one, number three, is heading. That's when you actually do it, right? You're heading. They're helpless. They don't know where to go. You're heading. You're getting somewhere. So number one, you want to focus on the relationship. This is where you go, what is my North Star? Commitment. I made a commitment. I'm going to honor it and make it right. That's not I feel the commitment. What is a commitment? A commitment is a promise to do something that you'll do it when you no longer feel like you do when you made that commitment. Otherwise, there's nothing there. 
A commitment is acting on the promise you made when you no longer feel like you did when you made the commitment. So part of the process, the first thing of heading somewhere is focusing on the relationship, the commitment you made, not how you're feeling about it. Remember, I said early on that you may be just as hurting and just as upset and just as disconnected as your spouse, but you're choosing to step forward. You're focused on the relationship, not how you're feeling in the moment. Your spouse is stuck in the feelings. Why? Because they're hurting, hopeless, and helpless. Number two, follow your plan. Or as my wife likes to say, consult your plan, not your emotions. Sometimes I watch people who have the best created plan that they're not doing anything on it. And I'll ask why. Because they're feeling hurt. Because they're feeling upset. Feeling hopeless. They're feeling something and they're allowing the feeling to dictate their actions. Don't fall into that trap. You have to have a plan. So follow your plan. And then when the feelings aren't where you want them to be, consult your plan and keep on doing it anyway. Number three, you need to show up differently. You're not going to get anywhere different being the same person you were before. Where you were got you to here. You want to be at a different place. That's true for all of us. Where I was last week got me to here, but it's not going to get me anywhere better. So I've got to find a different way of being. That's just a a regular place of change. How can I grow and expand? How can I show up differently? Not oppositely, right? I don't have to be the opposite person. I don't have to change my personality, but differently. How can I bring a different level of energy to this? Number four, focus on your individual growth. Work on change, right? There are three pieces to my plan. Connecting with your spouse, changing yourself, creating a new path. If right now your spouse is going, yeah, no, I'm not connecting with you, you still can work on changing yourself. You've always got that as an option, always available. So focus your attention there. Don't say, oh, there's nothing I can do. There absolutely is. Work on changing yourself. And when you change yourself, you're showing up differently. You're bringing a different self to that. You're bringing hope. You're bringing healing. The fifth thing, the last thing you want to do is focus on inviting your spouse back into the relationship, not forcing, not threatening, not scaring, not pulling, not dragging, but inviting. Make ways of connecting that are inviting to that, not desperate, but inviting. When you are inviting, notice how that changes the disconnection, the disregard, and the disrespect. Notice how that exhibits hope. Notice how it moves somebody out of helplessness. Your spouse is stuck behind the barriers of hurting, hopeless, and helpless. Your tasks are to be healing, be hoping, and be heading towards something better. Hey, I hope you like that training. I know it, it kind of gets to be intense and, and there's a lot there, but it's so important to get that information and really embedded that in you so you understand and you can see where those barriers are. So we're at the end of the training. And if that's been helpful, maybe you want to step into VIP. If you have the Save the Marriage system, that's the kind of the, the basics that you have to understand that before stepping in. But if you already have stepped into that, that's kind of your white belt. 
Now you're ready for your blue belt. Let's step into that. That would be VIP. If you're interested in that, let me know. You can drop me a note at coach at savethemarriage.com. That's coach at savethemarriage.com. By the way, if you don't have the system, I offer you a free week of VIP. All the trainings are there. All the tools are there. You can grab that just when I offer it. Take me up on it. You can start by grabbing the system at savethemarriage.com. That's savethemarriage.com. And last thing is, if you want to read more and understand more about those barriers, check out my book, Beyond the Three Barriers, by going to savethemarriage.com slash barriers. That's savethemarriage.com slash barriers. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you work to save your marriage. You've been listening to Save the Marriage Podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at savethemarriage.com. Thank you.